Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. On a sunny afternoon in May 1999, amateur photographer Walter Lockwood and his friend hiked through the Santa Monica Mountains. Walter loved snapping pictures of abandoned vehicles. They'd come here hoping to find a yard of antique, broken-down trucks. After hours of searching, the hikers discovered a ravine full of cars with smashed windows, dented fenders, and rusty tire rims. To Walter, it was the perfect photoshoot location. As he climbed down into the pit, a green Aerostar minivan caught his eye. When Walter aimed his camera at the passenger side window, he saw a slender white object sticking out from the center console. Curious, he inched closer to the van. But now, within an arm's distance of the front seat, Walter realized that the object was actually a human bone. Gripped with terror, he turned around and tried to scramble out of the canyon. But as he hurried away, his foot crunched on something. He glanced down and screamed. Walter's foot was stuck in a human skull. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our one-part episode on Philip Taylor Kramer. In 1995, the tech entrepreneur was on the cusp of a scientific advancement that would change the world. But soon after, he vanished. Today, we'll explore how Kramer transitioned from struggling rock and roller to founder of a groundbreaking tech company. We'll go through the day of his disappearance beat by beat and follow the official search that ensued. Then, we'll try to determine what happened to the young inventor. Authorities have long claimed that he killed himself. But some theorists believe he was actually abducted and murdered by a foreign government because of his top-secret knowledge. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great. 
and we're sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. As a child, Philip Taylor Kramer was fascinated by the mysteries of the universe. After all, he grew up in the 1950s and space was all the rage. When Taylor was five years old in 1957, the Soviet Union put its first satellite in space. And five years later, John F. Kennedy made a big announcement. America would be the first country to put men on the moon. Taylor looked at these events with awe and admiration. His father, Ray, chaired the electrical engineering department at Youngstown State University in Ohio. Taylor would happily sit for hours, listening to Ray talk about the nuts and bolts of these space explorations. For his part, Ray never missed a beat. He'd explain NASA's newest projects, recent computer advancements, and technological breakthroughs. Taylor's fascination with science only deepened, and at just 12 years old, he and his father built a laser that could shoot down balloons. It won first place at his school's science fair. Taylor's curiosity touched everything. That same year, he taught himself how to play guitar. He'd spend his afternoons practicing music and his nights staring at his dad in doting admiration. Ray's evenings were often filled with scribbling numbers and symbols onto a notepad. When Taylor would ask his dad about the notepad, Ray always gave the same answer. He was creating one equation to solve everything. In Taylor's world, his dad wasn't just working on an equation. He was solving the equation, even if he didn't know to what just yet. So Taylor would sit back and let his imagination run wild with the scientific possibilities of this formula. It could unlock everything in the universe if it worked. Taylor loved science, but as he got older, his passion for music grew. When he was a teen, he formed a band with some friends who used their dad's garage to jam in the evenings. And when Taylor turned 18 in 1974, he was more than ready to move to Los Angeles to pursue a career in music. Soon after, he struck up a close friendship with Ron Bushy, the long-haired and mustached drummer of the band Iron Butterfly. In 1968, 
the group produced their first smash hit, Inagata da Vida. The single brought in millions in album sales and put the band on the map. But by the time Taylor arrived in L.A., it had been years since they'd had a hit song. Several of the original band members had since exited the group, leaving it a skeleton of what it once was. Still, when Bushy invited Taylor to play bass for Iron Butterfly, Taylor was ecstatic. He grew his hair out to look more like a rocker, and over the next three years, he fully undertook the new identity, writing two records and touring with Iron Butterfly. At first, the band drew some large crowds, but those audiences dwindled as time wore on. Music critics said the new band didn't have the same sound. Album sales fell short of their 1968 success. Try as they might, the group failed to make the top 100 chart in the United States. As Iron Butterfly stalled, Taylor questioned whether he really wanted to spend his life playing bass for a mediocre band. He felt like he was meant to do something more significant. He'd always been good at science, and even on the road, Taylor devoted himself to math and physics. He jotted down ideas for new formulas and equations on restaurant napkins and hotel notepads. Come 1980, he cut his hair, left the band, and enrolled in college. Even though it had been years since Taylor had been in a classroom, he breezed through his classes. Science had always brought him joy as a kid, and now he was finding that this was an area he could truly excel at. Sure enough, before he'd even graduated with his degree in aerospace engineering, he was scooped up to work as a contractor for the U.S. Department of Defense, by the Northrop Corporation, no less, one of the DOD's biggest contracted firms. On his first day of work, Taylor had to raise his right hand and swear an oath of allegiance to the United States. He vowed to keep all of his projects under lock and key. It was an intense environment to be dropped into, but Taylor was excited to get to work on whatever covert projects he could find. It's hard to say which exact projects Taylor was on, given that most of his work was classified, But according to the Washington Post, the ex-bassist worked on a nuclear warhead missile known as the MX. The bomb was designed to hit targets on the other side of the world. Taylor's role on the project seems to have been fine-tuning the navigation system so the rocket could travel with pinpoint accuracy. This work was so sensitive that he even had to hide it from his co-workers. Oftentimes, the engineers strung long strands of tape over the opening of his cubicles so his colleagues knew they couldn't look at whatever he was working on. If details about the MX missile fell into the wrong hands, it could have meant disaster for the United States. The technology would allow other countries to plan defenses against the bomb, or worse, create their own. Because of the project's sensitivity, Taylor was among a small group of people associated with the DOD who knew anything about the missile. For the next few years, he worked on the MX and other secret contracts. And despite the secretive nature of the work, it was good work. Northrop paid well and the benefits were stellar. In 1987, Taylor married a woman named Jennifer, And three years later, they welcomed their first child together, Haley. 
Jennifer came to the marriage with a son, so together they raised their two children. With two kids running and crawling around their household, Taylor decided to leave his work as a government contractor for a more normal nine-to-five. In 1990, Taylor opened a technology corporation. At first, the company worked on data compression, communication, and any innovation Taylor could dream up. He was always pitching new ideas to his team. They were still trying to figure out their first major breakthrough, but the work itself was thrilling for him. Then, in 1991, he secured a huge deal. His small tech company would be merging with Randy Jackson Entertainment, as in Jackson 5 Randy Jackson. The merger promised Taylor and his company plenty of wealth in the future. Once merged, the group renamed itself Total Multimedia Incorporated, or TMMI. They focused on electronic magazines and video-based curriculums for schools. At the time, videos were more rare in school classrooms, so Taylor's idea was pretty revolutionary. For a while, it seemed like Taylor had caught his rising star. He owned 1.7 million shares in the company, and their stock price was steadily rising in the early 90s. And for the company overall, it felt like they were onto something big. Taylor was creating technology that most people couldn't even conceptualize. But as the years wore on, it became clear to funders that some of Taylor's ideas were impractical. Investors wanted to see the numbers, but Taylor was more interested in the energy and mysticism of their work. This took a toll on the company. Employee morale plummeted, and after a three-year run, by 1994, TMMI declared bankruptcy. It was a devastating blow for Taylor but he wasn't ready to give up. He'd spent his whole life watching his father play the long game and his patience to muse over a single formula. Taylor knew that if he could solve that equation, he could bring TMMI out of the trenches. He told colleagues he was working on something big, something revolutionary, something that could change the world. The caveat, obviously, was that he never told them exactly what it was. Even today, details of the project are hard to come by, but we do believe that he'd been researching lightspeed travel. He hoped to discover the secret to bending space and time. Within the year, other TMMI executives began noticing Taylor laboring long into the night, every night. When other employees went home, Taylor stayed hunched over the papers on his desk. Much like his father had done, Taylor scribbled notes for hours. He grew increasingly obsessed with his research. In late January 1995, he appears to have stopped sleeping altogether. For Taylor, rest would only delay his breakthrough. The next few weeks indicated Taylor believed he was on the cusp of a revelation. He hinted to others that he was nearing a resolution on the formula that could change the world. But that day never came. Coming up, Taylor vanishes along California's coastline. And now back to the story. In 1995, 
Philip Taylor Kramer, a 42-year-old inventor and tech entrepreneur, was on the cusp of a revolutionary scientific breakthrough. At least, that's what he told colleagues. But all the long nights spent at the office had apparently taken a toll on Taylor, one that no one could have predicted the consequences of. On February 11th, he sped over to his father Ray's house. Once there, Taylor revealed an embarrassing secret. He only had 40 cents in his pocket, and he desperately needed cash. Ray took a long look at his son. Taylor looked exhausted, bleary-eyed, and burned out. With a sigh, Ray told Taylor that he needed rest, not money. He sent him home with instructions to take better care of himself. When Taylor returned home that night, he was still restless. Multiple times, he woke up to perform calculations on his laptop while his wife Jennifer laid asleep in bed. The next morning, Taylor seemed eager to get going. He gave his wife a fresh cup of coffee, a kiss goodbye, and was out the door. Even though it was a Sunday, he had plenty to do. His first stop was to visit his father-in-law. Once there, he gave the old man a kaleidoscope and cryptically explained, quote, It's all right here. Then, Taylor drove to LAX to pick up Greg Martini, a colleague in town on business. Taylor planned to drop him at his hotel. The story becomes a little foggy here, given this happened nearly 30 years ago, but this is what we know. Taylor entered the airport parking lot that morning alone in his green Aerostar van. And about 45 minutes later, he left the area without Greg. Afterwards, Taylor reportedly called his wife and asked if she could explain the situation to Greg. He'd left without him, but planned to meet up with Greg and Jennifer at Greg's hotel later that afternoon. On this call, Taylor also told his wife he had a big surprise for her. She had no idea what he was talking about, but he didn't explain further. Taylor made 16 other calls to friends that morning. These calls grew increasingly paranoid. At 11.59 a.m., he made one final call, this time to 911. Once on the phone with the operator, he gave them his name and told them he planned to kill himself. And then he hung up. Jennifer had no idea about these calls. So that afternoon, she and Greg sat in a hotel lobby waiting for Taylor to arrive. As the minutes stretched into hours, Jennifer could feel her stomach growing heavy. The call she'd gotten from Taylor that morning was weird, even for him. But she carried on, hoping that the tall man she'd fallen in love with years ago would walk through the lobby any second now. When Taylor never arrived, her worry became alarm. Her husband was missing, and so began the race to find him. The next few days were a whirlwind. Jennifer and the rest of Taylor's family passed out thousands of flyers around Los Angeles, hoping that someone would recognize Taylor. The former rock musician would be hard to miss. He was 6'5 and had a strapping build. He'd stand out in any crowd. Eventually, people all over California began calling in to say that they had seen Taylor in their towns. First, he was spotted at a bus stop in West LA. 
It seemed like a good lead, but the man who the caller saw had matted hair and was wearing dirty clothes. Since it only been a week since Taylor had gone missing, it seemed unlikely he'd be in such a state by then. Then, a pawn shop owner in the neighborhood Taylor used to live in claimed that a tall man wearing a wedding ring came into his store shortly after Taylor went missing. The business owner said that the man wasn't very interested in selling his ring, but he was interested in the computers at the store. It was the best lead they'd had yet, but it still wasn't much to go on. By the time they received the tip, Taylor was likely long gone from that area of town. All his family could do was search the streets of L.A., hoping to come across him. Taylor was supposedly spotted in other areas along L.A.'s west side, too, at a soup kitchen in Long Beach, the Santa Monica Pier, and even a local Burger King. But unfortunately, none of these leads went very far. And with each new phone call, Jennifer doubted more and more that she'd ever find her husband. Almost a month passed with no significant updates, until in early March, when an elderly couple reported seeing a tall man at a supermarket in Agora Hills, about 30 miles northwest of Los Angeles. Apparently, the man approached the couple asking for money. He said he needed to call his family, but that he only had 40 cents, the exact amount Taylor had in his pocket the day he went missing. It was an incredibly specific lead, and it reignited hope that Taylor might still be alive. A few days later, Jennifer got a call on the family's home phone. When she picked up, she expected it to be another bad lead, but this time, the person on the other end was quiet. They breathed into the receiver. A pause, then, hello, hello, hello. Jennifer thought the person seemed out of it, maybe nervous, but before she could think of a response, the caller hung up. The mother of two stared back at the phone in disbelief. She knew, deep in her bones, that Taylor was the one breathing heavily into the phone. Her husband had just called her to signal that he was alive. The call offered Jennifer a renewed sense of hope, and for the next several months, she worked to get his story out to the public. Unsolved Mysteries, a popular true crime TV show, ran a feature on Taylor. And at one point, the FBI even got involved, after Ohio Congressman James A. Trafficant Jr. raised alarm bells about the engineer's disappearance. He saw it as a matter of national security and formally requested that the FBI investigate the matter. But eventually, Trafficant lost interest in Taylor's case, as did the FBI. Without any new evidence or new advocates, for years the case sat idle. While police and the private investigator Taylor's family had hired were diligent, they had nothing to go on. There was no body and virtually no evidence. They waited in uneasy tension until May 1999. That spring, photographer Walter Lockwood and his friend were hiking through a ravine below Decker Canyon Road. The throughway is a long, winding road just north of Malibu. The hike was far from idyllic. The woods were apparently covered in garbage and run-down vehicles that had been stripped for parts. Sometime during the hike, 
Walter spotted a totaled green Aerostar minivan that seemed out of place. The windshield was shattered and the hood was crumpled. But more importantly, it sat directly below Decker Canyon Road. It was as if the vehicle had fallen 450 feet straight down from the street. Curious, Walter walked toward the van, hoping to catch some interesting shots of the total vehicle. Odd as it was, it seemed like just another relic tucked away. But when he finally got close enough to see through the driver's seat window, he noticed a long, thin object sticking out. Almost immediately, Walter realized it was a human bone. And to his horror, he discovered that he was actually staring at a decomposed human corpse. Stumbling back in shock, Walter made one last terrifying discovery, a human skull. Somehow, the head of the person in the driver's seat had tumbled out of the car and onto the ground. And now, Walter had managed to land his foot on the cranium. When Walter and his friend finally caught their breath, they called 911 to report the body. Within hours, officers climbed down into the canyon to examine the car and the body. Authorities reportedly found Philip Taylor Kramer's ID in the van. Soon, they delivered the news to Jennifer Kramer. Her husband was dead. Over the next few months, a coroner examined the body and determined Taylor had died from blunt force trauma to the head. And while they couldn't say for sure what had caused that trauma, authorities suspected he died by suicide. They didn't have a lot to base this conclusion on, but Taylor did make that 911 call the morning of his disappearance, and that seemed to be enough for them. But this explanation wasn't enough for many others including Taylor's family. They weren't sure if authorities were telling the truth. Taylor's father in particular was convinced that the true story was much more sinister. Someone had been out to get Taylor and succeeded. Coming up, the complicated search for answers. And now back to the story. Philip Taylor Kramer was a young inventor on the cusp of a world-changing breakthrough when he disappeared in February 1995. After his body was found in a Malibu canyon four years later, questions emerged about the circumstances of his death. Which brings us to the most striking conspiracy theory about Philip Taylor Kramer's death, that he was abducted and eventually murdered by a foreign government because of what he knew. To understand this theory, we need to rewind back to the project Taylor was working on in the years leading up to his disappearance. For most of his life, Taylor had reportedly dedicated himself to an equation that would allow us to travel at the speed of light. The implications of this breakthrough are huge. If he was correct, we could travel at warp speed, This means that humans would not only be able to visit other galaxies, but also travel through time. Now, this might sound like something out of a sci-fi film, but questions about time travel and breaking the light barrier are often discussed in studies of theoretical physics. Right now, we are all traveling through time, albeit at a one second per second pace. But if we could travel at Taylor's warp speed, we could actually move faster or slower 
than one second per second. Even Albert Einstein suggested that time travel would be theoretically possible if we could break the light barrier. As far as we know, no one has done this. But if Taylor was right, and he really had discovered a way to move at warp speed, this technology would have been very interesting to governments around the world. After all, whoever had the information could change history, past, present, and future. For this reason, theorists think that because Taylor had unlocked these secrets, and because Taylor knew classified information about the inner workings of the U.S. government, he would have been a target for America's enemies. According to his father and his wife, Jennifer, in the months leading up to Taylor's disappearance, he became paranoid about someone coming after him for his work. At one point, he became so nervous about his family's safety that he asked Jennifer if they could move. He needed to go somewhere far away, somewhere they could be anonymous, somewhere with high walls and good security. Taylor was so on edge that he even told his father that if Taylor ever said he was going to take his own life, his dad shouldn't believe it. Instead, it meant that Taylor was in trouble. So when Ray learned about a 911 call that Taylor made on the morning of his disappearance, he was immediately suspicious. To him, his son hadn't died. He was in danger and needed help. According to this theory, Taylor may have actually used the 911 call to communicate he was being followed when he was at LAX. If someone was tailing or threatening him, he might have felt like he needed to escape. So he left the parking garage and tried to get out of town as fast as possible. Or the call to 911 could have also been to throw his enemies off his scent. Some theorists believed Taylor wanted his pursuers to hear him calling in, so they would assume he was dead and give up the chase. There's another key piece of evidence that believers point to in support of this theory. On the morning Taylor vanished, he gave his father-in-law a kaleidoscope. The gift was odd, not only because he gave an elderly man a child's toy, but also because of what was in the kaleidoscope. The repeating patterns in kaleidoscopes are similar to those called fractals. And there are theories about breaking the light barrier that involve the way light could be made up of fractals. So perhaps Taylor was trying to send a coded message by giving him this gift. Perhaps he was trying to tell him that he'd solve the equation. Or he may have just given his father-in-law the gift because he thought he'd enjoy it. The problem I keep coming up against with this theory is that there's a strong counterpoint to every piece of circumstantial evidence. I see what you mean. There are a lot of holes in this theory. For example, a lot of theorists have pointed out that because the FBI investigated his disappearance, that suggests it was a matter of security. But they only did this after Representative Trafficant called upon the agency to look into the matter. What's not talked about is Trafficant's credibility. Right. In 2002, he was convicted for 10 federal crimes, including bribery, tax fraud, and obstruction of justice. So it's very possible the congressman wasn't being fully transparent about his intentions when he called for the FBI investigation. 
He may have just been looking to gain some political capital or make headlines ahead of the 1996 elections. And beyond that, it breaks down even further. First, the foundation for this theory is that Taylor had a breakthrough in his pursuit to discover time travel. Yet we still don't know what Taylor discovered or how valuable it was. Even his father hasn't given many details about it. Plus, no one has offered any reasonable explanation for how a foreign government would have learned about Taylor's work, abducted him, and then killed him on U.S. soil without anyone noticing. Still, I think it's clear that Taylor was terrified for his safety. He asked Jennifer if they could move houses. And remember what Ray Kramer said. Taylor claimed that people were harassing him and that if he was in trouble, he would say he was going to commit suicide as a signal. I'm not sure I believe Ray's story, though. He never clarified who was after his son or why the family didn't take some actions beforehand. And Taylor may have made that remark because he was actually considering suicide. I don't think there's enough evidence to conclude that he was abducted by a secret organization. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most believable, I'm going to give this theory a 1. You make good points. There's no proof that Taylor was kidnapped on February 12th, and we have no real reason to believe the government or another organization would want his research or that they'd be able to pull off an assassination like this. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'll give this theory a 2. Though there are a lot of peculiarities about this case, the truth might be much more common. Authorities have long believed that the inventor died by suicide. In the months leading up to his disappearance, Taylor's company, Total Multimedia Incorporated, filed for bankruptcy. According to Jennifer, her husband took it hard. She said the corporation was mired by infighting and that Taylor couldn't stand his fellow executives' greed. Apparently, they were each bandying for power and money within TMMI. As his company struggled to stay afloat, Taylor dealt with another problem as well, something he kept hidden from his family, debt. Following his death, Jennifer discovered that her husband had left behind $30,000 in unpaid loans, According to a 1996 L.A. Times article, Taylor might have been taking out the loans to help his fledgling business. Or it could have been to pay his own salary when TMMI wasn't turning a profit. Either way, he was struggling to pay it back. And whatever struggles he was dealing with mentally, he didn't seem to share them with his family or friends. Grim as it is, it's not so surprising There's still social stigma around mental health care that can make it difficult for anyone to get the help they need. And in the 1990s, that was even more true, especially for men. The year that Taylor disappeared, nearly five times as many men died by suicide as women. And today, men still make up over 75% of suicides in the United States. Despite all of this, men are less likely to report symptoms of depression, anxiety, and other mood disorders that can contribute to suicidal ideation. As a 2018 article for the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry reported, this is perhaps because these symptoms are, quote, inconsistent with dominant notions of masculinity. 
In other words, our understanding of gender and manhood influence if and how men access the mental health care they need. Richard Leiby, writing for The Washington Post in 1996, put forward the idea that Philip Taylor Kramer was a man stuck in the perils of social constructs. He was a prodigy son who was destined for stardom. As an adult, he developed into a loving and caring father who provided his kids with anything they could ever ask for. The Christmas before he disappeared was marked with an overflowing number of gifts. The Kramers lived in a large home in a good part of town. From the outside, everything may have seemed perfectly normal, great even. But the confines of society weighed heavily on Taylor, and he likely died because he couldn't access the help he needed. Today, Taylor's story is published every so often in rock and roll magazines and articles about strange deaths. It lives on through blogs, Reddit forums, and the occasional interview from his friends and family. What happened to Philip Taylor Kramer in 1995 was a tragedy. It's possible he ended his own life, succumbed to an accident, or maybe was taken by government agents. To this day, his family continues to search for answers. Taylor's story may not be finished yet. Today's episode dealt with intense themes of suicide and mental health-related issues. If you or someone you know is going through a crisis, you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-273-8255. Or you can speak to them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on Philip Taylor Kramer, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Leiby's 1996 Washington Post article extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, edited by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Anya Bailey, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.